just never works correctly. Yeah. All right, now it's recording. Um, okay. It, it, it has a pop-up that's like, avoid legal issues. Tell the person you're recording the call. It should really just make both people consent to it, but whatever. Yeah. Because, like, someone could video you and you wouldn't even know. Like, that's... Yeah. I guess that would create an awkward step where if someone wants like, to what jump if you were sexting call... or something? No, it's like, what if you're, like, sexting? Yeah. This is how we should start the podcast, talking about this. Um, I'm going to leave this bit in. A lot of podcasts have like a fun outtake at the beginning. I know that's what I'm thinking. Uh, this yeah. is going to be the in the outtake. So are we going to include gonna, the talk yes! about putting it in the outtake? Yes, maybe. Okay, okay. good. All right, so uh, I'm going to basically start. Hello, welcome. This is episode two of the Blank Buzz Political Podcast. My name is Erin McCall. I realized I forgot to say my last name on the last episode so yeah I just said I'm Aaron um so I'm Aaron McCall and I'm joined once again by Wesley Walsh hello (laughs) and we were just having a little conversation in the beginning um about Skype because we're using Skype to record this um a because we live kind of far away from each other and b you know, it's the quarantine, so nobody is, like, meeting up in person anyway. So, um, and uh, I didn't realize I actually used a different call recorder uh, that's, like, an external third-party app last time around. Um, but my free trial of that ran out, but then I figured out that Skype actually allows you to record calls now within the platform, and I didn't realize that they offered that and obviously like you know you could understand the potential issues there because you can record someone without them knowing um and we were just talking about like the problems that that could cause and my mind immediately went to like uh cyber sex (laughs) as always it does (laughs) well I may or may not have like used Skype primarily for that in the past so yeah, I, I like, use so... Skype to play Dungeons and Dragons with my friends remotely. That's pretty much a summary of our personalities right there. <laughs> so you likely just heard an outtake of us talking about that before we started recording. Um, so uh, other than getting used to um, also Skype was like malfunctioning um, as it usually does. So other than all of the Skype nonsense, how have you been doing? Well, you'll be surprised to learn it's pretty similar to last week. Uh, that was a joke. Uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> it wasn't that funny. Well, let's leave that to the viewers to decide. I'm staying home. I'm washing my hands. I'm being responsible and when are you not though (laughs) (laughs) see that was funny you should have laughed at that (laughs) yeah and so 
all adequate on my end. How about you? I'm, I don't know. I, I definitely, I mean, you know, I've had kind of a rough week this week, I think. Mm. I mean, you know that, though. I do know that, yeah. I don't want to lie, so here I am. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I, everyone else doesn't know this, obviously. So I had my last day at my full-time job last Friday, and um, it's just been kind of difficult to figure out just, like, how to set up my life, basically. I thought I was going to be so excited when that day came, and I kind of was, but there's also just a lot of logistical things that I have to figure out and make adjustments to, and loose ends I've had to tie up and things like that. And so I don't, sound yeah, like a mobster. Well, I am a little bit, but <laughs> um, and, and I just think my mood the past week has been kind of melancholy, and yeah, it's just it's weird. It definitely, I've heard about this from obviously I didn't lose my job, but people who lose their job and then they sometimes feel kind of lost and like they lost their purpose and meaning in life. And I I get that feeling because I think, I think a lot of it is just that our society is so set up around our jobs and our career. Like I've heard before that, which I've never been to Europe. So I don't know if this is true um, culturally, but I've heard that like in the European culture where they value work a lot less than we do that, when you first meet someone and kind of exchange pleasantries and make small talk, people will ask you um, like what kind of hobbies you like to do and what kind of activities you like and what your family's like and things like that. They won't just act, like versus here when we make small talk, we're like, what do you do? That's always the first question. Like, what's your career? Um, you know, that's how we sort of like figure out how to relate to someone. Even the question itself, what do you do? The fact that that is, we're expecting the answer to be, what do you do to make money? Yeah, Um, right. Yeah. So I think because that's so much of how our society functions, it's when you're kind of figuring out what that looks like or you don't, you're not you don't have a clear career path at the moment or you are without a job it's kind of a weird feeling and everything else I think kind of um goes into chaos a little bit and Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's definitely and I think it's a strange time also to be quitting a job I had planned this timing a lot suit a lot um previous to this whole crisis so it just kind of came at an unfortunate time um and I I was already like in the deep end so there was really no going back I I suppose I could have not given my notice but I planned everything to this specific timing so not doing it would have not really made sense so I feel like I just had to kind of go forward with it but yeah it's it's been a long week, I feel like. And it's kind of felt short. I'm like, I can't even believe tomorrow's Friday. But it's also <laughs> weird because I'm no longer 
because I had a nine to five kind of job. So it, it's weird not being on that schedule anymore. Also, I'm going to pour more wine. So you might hear me like rustling around for a second. Um, yeah. So, all right. Enough of my bitching nonsense. Um, let's talk about politics. So, you said first, that you pour a big glass of wine. <laughs> let's get nasty. <laughs> you know, I got a drink to get through some of the topics that we're going to be discussing. Mm. So, let we're going to start with our first segment, which is Tweet of the Week. Um, and in this segment, each of us chooses a tweet that we found compelling, interesting, inspiring, or completely repugnant to discuss and dissect. So I'm going to start with my tweet this week since we started with yours last week. Um, so my tweet, I actually came across this through, I, I uh, have a bunch of different sort of daily news letters that I subscribe to in my email. And I believe this one was from the Newsette, it's called. And um, I saw it on Monday, I believe it was, and I instantly knew I was going to pick it for Tweet of the Week. Um, it's from Hannah Goldfield, who's actually a food critic for the New York Times, so she's not in politics. Uh, and her tweet is, I would argue that the president is now murdering people in the middle of Fifth Avenue, which I'm sure the context for anybody who's remotely paid attention to anything in the last four years um remembers the famous uh trump i don't know where he said it but in the 2016 presidential campaign he said are you looking (laughs) i can hear you looking that up he famously said that he could murder somebody walking down the street on fifth avenue and people would still vote for him as far as like his supporters just having this kind of blind faith towards him and almost almost having this sort of zealot like quality which i think is pretty true even though it's i think kind of disturbing and um and just people don't like know how to have their own opinions and are so attached to this idol but you know there's a percentage of his support that's conditional. It's about 20% of his support. But you can see, you know, there's that solid 35% that no matter what happens is has is is voting uh, in his approval polls, uh, that they just love what they're seeing. Uh, so I think that that is one of the more intelligent and truthful things that he has said. <laughs> yeah, I don't have to, I, I don't disagree with it. I, I, I do think it's pretty accurate, but I think it's just this idolatry thing. And I feel like it's the same. It's a weird dynamic with these populists specifically. And you see it, the same thing with Bernie Sanders. It's just that it's happening on the left where his supporters have the same kind of attitude where it's like they love him. He can do no wrong. And it's really more about him as a person, not really his policies that people love and attach to. It's just more of him as a figure. And that's what I think the people 
who I don't know who the fuck participates in these approval rating polls. I've always I've said that I think the Russians have hacked into those, which I I still do think that's possible. But I don't even think they're necessarily voting in those polls based off of what they're actually seeing. I think it's just more that they like Trump and like that's they like him. They approve of him. So that's what is reflective in the rating. It's not necessarily so connected to what is he actually doing? What are his actual sort of positions? What moves is he making? It's more that they're just attached to him. Yeah, it's a it's a strong brand. Uh, He has managed to inspire a high level of loyalty uh, among a very strong section of his supporters. Uh, And that's sort of given him this gravity that's allowed him to draw in the other sections of the Republican Party because his diehard support constitutes a certain percentage of the Republican primary uh, electorate at all levels, such that you pretty much have to be all in on Trump, except in a select few places like Utah, uh, in order to make it at any level within the party. Uh, And I do think that there are the the Sanders cult exists, but I think that it's a much smaller but louder group of people um, that the vast majority of his supporters are just chill young people and cool old people. And then there's this group on Twitter that is rabid and really cultish. And it's like the Reddit people, basically. Yeah, the Reddit people, the Twitter mm-hmm. people. Uh, yeah. And the problem is, I think, the biggest mistake of the Sanders campaign was drawing its staff from the pool of diehard supporters. Because I think those people have really misadvised the campaign on how to present itself, um, which I think is a significant factor in its lower level of support in 2020 versus 2016. Uh, You know, just recently they had to get rid of um, Dave Sororda for base because he was just so obnoxious online that he was an impediment to the campaign. Um, And something I've been thinking about a lot is looking into how you could present the character of Bernie Sanders if you weren't committing political malpractice. There's this great video of him uh, with his grandkids where it's the side of him that from, from political news. I know it's so weird to me that he's a grandpa and even his wife. I mean, you never even see him with his wife hardly ever. Right. And he also, he's, he's done all this stuff with like, campaigning for labor rights in major league baseball because he really really is passionate about baseball 
And so there's so many aspects. And have you have you seen that video of him? His it's his his grandkids are being loud, and it wakes him up. And so he comes out of his out of the upstairs, <laughs> pretending to be a grandpa zombie. No, uh, and it's incredibly <laughs> cute. Um, and I think that there would have been a, a, a competent set of campaign managers could have very easily done something with a cute grandpa who loves baseball and wants everyone to have health care. Uh, <laughs> and the fact that his campaign has suffered so hard from uh, being in a head-to-head race uh, is evidence that, you know, he need he, uh, his hiring practices have been disastrous for him. Yeah. Well, I remember when things kind of first took a turn around Super Tuesday and the question was like, what happened that made everything fall apart all of a sudden? And because he looked like he was in the lead, which I know scared both you and I (laughs) um, for a minute. And, you know, and then Biden just completely blew him out of the water Super Tuesday and hasn't really stopped since then so and it seems like what's happened is that he hasn't been able to expand his base at all he didn't make any progress specifically with african-american voters which he really needed to do well he he has 2015 but he has a he has a bigger he has more support among african-american voters than he did in 2016 he has made inroads in that community it's just still not enough and not enough compared to, you know, Biden's kind of powerhouse uh, momentum in that demographic. Yeah. Well, I mean, according to, I don't know what data you're looking at because everything that I've seen has said that he hasn't really expanded support with African-American voters. Um, which they first, I mean, because the first three states of the primary also were very white states. So it didn't really show up necessarily until Super Tuesday when we started to hit the South, which obviously has very high numbers of African-American voters and populace. So I know I can hear you like looking this up right now. Yes. But I mean, but he, but I think that's to the point though, he hasn't, his messaging, None of it has really expanded to sort of a broader democratic base, which is what you need to do in a presidential election. You have to appeal broadly and widely to a variety of different groups of people. You can't just rely on a solid base. It's it's just impossible to win a national election that way. And I think he hasn't really done that. Um, He hasn't done that in the numbers. He hasn't done that if you look at his campaign strategy. I mean, I don't disagree with you. I think the strategy is very um, elementary almost, where it's just, it's not any different than it was in 2016. And I, I, I would think any campaign that, ran four years ago you would be assessing what mistakes did we make what things do we need to change next time 
and adjust in order to uh, pull ahead in four years and get the nomination. And it doesn't seem like that really happened at all because his campaign strategy isn't really any different than it was in 2016, which, again, doesn't really make sense. So I I think his strategy was keep a hold of a strong base constituting 25 to 35 percent of the party in a highly divided field. Uh, Yeah. Basically, uh, repeat a mirror image of how Trump won the primary in 2016. Uh, The problem was that the moderate wing of the Democratic Party uh, was better organized than the moderate wing of the Republican Party, if you can call it really a moderate wing. Mm-hmm. It's it's like four guys. Yeah, uh, it doesn't really point. have a moderate wing anymore. Right. But yeah, I mean, I think, and I and just with anything, you can't base a strategy on something that worked four years ago. It's a completely different moment in time, and it doesn't work to just like copy and paste someone's campaign. And use it for yourself and think that that's going to be a winning strategy. It it doesn't work that way. Right. So what was your tweet? Oh, yeah. We're in tweet of the week. You struggled with this one a little bit. We've sort of. uh, We've sort of slipped from tweet of the week to election update. And now we're back to tweet (laughs) of the week. Um, And I guess. With this, we're probably going to end up slipping from Tweet of the Week to Corona Update, uh, because my Tweet of the Week is about the coronavirus. It's from uh, Peter Giegan, who is an Irish journalist uh, working with the uh, Open Democracy organization, which is kind of just a global uh, movement to get money out of politics. Uh, <clears throat> he's This is not really about that. This is about... Uh, But anyway, the tweet reads, uh, irregular reminder that underlying health conditions is not a synonym for they weren't really a real person slash they would have died soon anyway. Um, Because this is a talking point that I'm seeing a lot from people who are quarantine weary, who think, who are beginning to be tempted by this idea that... The virus isn't dangerous to the majority of people, so maybe we just open and open up society and let the weak perish. And <clears throat> that is, uh, obviously when you phrase it the way I did, repugnant, uh, and it <laughs> needs to be uh, restated that, no, these aren't people who are going to die anyway, you know, uh, people, the people who are at risk, uh, obviously we talk about elderly people, but we also have to include people with diabetes. Those people, that's something like one and a half million people in the United States have diabetes. Okay. There we go. Um, so yes, uh, uh, I'm just going to, So, uh, people who have diabetes, the virus wreaks havoc on their system, they need hospitalization. 
people with diabetes are not going to die soon anyway. It's a chronic condition. It's very treatable. Uh, granted, people with diabetes are at this point used to being thrown under the bus by the majority. Uh, <laughs> as, as you know, if you've looked at the data for the price of insulin, it's tripled in the last 10 years. People are paying basically as much for insulin as they do for rent which is an abhorrent aspect of our system that probably needs to be the policy priority for healthcare policy that this is a this is a group of people who are bearing the brunt of the economic consequences of our broken healthcare system they're obese so it's their fault so they should pay more not all of them and not i don't even know if it's even most of them you but, know what? Um, that's like the talking yes point. that's that's the talking point is Right. Uh, <clears throat> and, and it's all this kind of always. Also, type when, 2 diabetes has nothing to do with um, right. it's like genetic. It has nothing to do yeah. with weight or health or anything else. Right. If you don't want to say the thing you actually believe, which is some people just need to die if they can't afford to live then you say the easier thing, which is blaming them for not being responsible enough. You should have thought about the cost before you got this disease, um, which is... Ugh. Um, <clears throat> people with asthma get the coronavirus, they need hospitalization. I think These it's are... diabetes that's actually the one that's genetic. Sorry. Oh. Um, I'm just... Yeah. Fact, I'm fact-checking myself. <laughs> that's that's good to know. Uh, yeah, people with asthma are uh, obviously have uh, problems breathing, and when they get a virus that attacks their lungs, uh, a lot of them need to be hospitalized, even if they're young. People with immune disorders. Well, let me, um, as someone who was incorrectly diagnosed with asthma last year. Asthma, I learned a lot about it. Asthma is actually an allergy, um, or it's it, it, it's grouped together with different autoimmune disorders that are allergy-based. And it actually flares up with certain allergens. It depends on the person. It could be something like dust mites. It could be something like um, pollen or um, cat hair um, it depends on the person as to what the triggers are, but it is in that autoimmune group. And it, and actually what it means is that you have an overactive immune system. So then, um, mm. with, which obviously has implications for something like contracting a virus, but sorry, I just wanted to say that about asthma. Cause I, yeah. cause I also like also always just thought that it was just like a, lung disease where your lungs are just like under functional which mm -hmm. can be part of it but it, it's caused by some kind of an uh an allergen that essentially uh makes you less able to produce oxygen and sort of breathe correctly um but not because of a real quote-unquote condition it's just that your body is like incorrectly responding to something in the environment that it deems threatening, but is not actually threatening. Right. Um, and so <clears throat> you, listener, in all likelihood, know multiple people with asthma or diabetes or 
an immune disease or who are over 70. And so if you would not walk up to that person and shoot them with a gun, then you should stay inside. You uh, should, maybe you should tweet that. That's a good tweet. Maybe I will. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, one of the things I pulled in my notes, uh, which was in the coronavirus section, but as you said, we're kind of um, relaxing the boundaries a little bit of the segments, um, because the president of Brazil, which I, I don't yeah. know if I pronounce his name correctly, but it's um, Jair Bolsonaro. Jair Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro. <laughs> Say it for me. Jair Bolsonaro. They're, okay. Um, so he said that they can't continue quarantining because it's destroying the economy and we're all going to die one day was his quote. Um, yes. Yeah, so. <laughs> Bolsonaro is basically a Trump and a half operating in a system where he can do a lot more damage uh, because Brazil already had uh, political and yeah, economic institutions that were under threat. Uh, Bolsonaro, has a the, very the short... The short intro to him as a character is he's a real piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> and uh, this is about in line with what one would expect from him. He's not very smart and he is very cruel. <laughs> I mean, I do think overall people are taking it seriously. I've definitely seen a change in behavior and perception and i think there's been a lot of developments especially over the past week or two that have caused people to understand the severity of going out and i think part of it is that it's interesting too because i think in our culture like it's interesting to see um like the response in south korea and china well God only knows because we probably don't have accurate numbers from China, but supposedly, you know, they sort of um, were able to uh, kind of more easily get people to quarantine and also had sort of stricter observation, like taking people's temperature and things like that um, in order to stop the spread. But I think also there's an interesting cultural difference that probably really underlies people's uh, sort of natural reaction and desire to follow the guidelines, which is probably not even conscious, but because those societies in China and South Korea are a lot more collective and group-based, where people think in a way that's based on what's best for the group, Um, And like their position within a group, um, I feel like probably that sort of thinking and sort of social order probably lended to people just cooperating more because they understand that it's not even just about themselves and their own safety. It's keeping, like you said, all of those different vulnerable populations 
from getting the virus or spreading it to those people. Mm-hmm. So, I, I actually kind of disagree with that take. Um, I think that the cultural factor in the response in South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, and People's Republic of China is overstated. Why are you using the official title? Sorry. Well, because they're not a republic. There's, right. there's a People's Republic of China and there's a Republic of China. Uh, <coughs> in spite of what the World Health Organization wants you to think. Uh, And so I do want to draw the... I don't have a personal one-China policy because I don't work for the UN. Uh, But I think that the big factor is, number one, all of these countries had uh, experience with the SARS epidemic in 2004, there that's you know 15 years ago most adults remember that epidemic uh it had long-running effects on how those countries handle public health uh it's one of the contributing factors to the widespread use of masks um that it's just a social norm in those countries even when there isn't a pandemic that if you're feeling a little under the weather and you go outside you wear a mask uh And, you know, if you're going to somewhere else and you're not familiar, uh, you know, it's not part of your daily routine, you wear a mask. Some people wear a mask all the time if they're more inclined that way. But basically, masks are widely available. People use them. uh, And that helps. Uh, And so I and so I think it's I think that. Uh, experience and uh, public health norms are a lot more important than uh, any kind of cultural Hmm. uh, factor. That's interesting. Well, I mean, I think also obviously here we've had a huge shortage of masks and I've been listening to so many different podcasts day to day that have talked about, um, Trump throughout his presidency um, not uh, refunding some different initiatives set up by the Obama administration um, essentially for like epidemic preparedness and things like that. They had like got rid of stockpiles of um, oh what are those ventilators um, which has now led to such a big shortage everywhere. Um, where the federal government just like doesn't have them to distribute to these different states who need them. Right. And, we chopped a couple billion yeah. off the CDC budget. Right. Um, and we got rid of that whole pandemic task force. Who needs that? Um, <laughs> and of course, also we wasted a ton of public money on tax cuts during a boom period, which was pointless we didn't need a stimulus package in 2018 we do need relief and eventually stimulus now and we can't do as much because the budget is tighter Um, right well and the economy is tanking right now right the economy is tanking now maybe now would have been the time to do a stimulus package that included some of those tax cuts they wanted to do (laughs) <laughs> I wouldn't be super enthused about that, but at least 
there would be some sense to it as opposed to just a big payout to the wealthy people that got them elected. Well, and I, I was going to, I think the thinking on that, everybody likes lower taxes. I think it's just like, if you're in Trump shoes, it's like, how can I make everybody happy? We're going to do tax cuts. And then there's no real thought. And I mean, I think anyone with a pair of eyes can see Trump doesn't have he doesn't think and plan. There's no like right. strategic planning. It's just these moment to moment decisions and impulses. So he's not thinking like, OK, if we do these tax cuts now, what are the implications then for two, three, four years down the line? <laughs> and he doesn't think that way. It's just that, you right. know, tax cuts are popular. Of course they are. And so we're going to do some tax cuts. It's not about like if it makes sense. It just it makes sense as far as it's going to boost his popularity. So I think those kind of things, there just wasn't a lot of like strategic planning going on. And then so they so they did them. And now, you know, it's coming back to bite them. They probably weren't right. planning on a pandemic happening this year in the in, in his reelection year. Um, so, you know, now when something like this happens and you fail to invest in those kind of long-term planning operations, which, yeah, like a pandemic task force. Yeah. I think it's easy to be like, we're spending too much money on this when there's no pandemic happening. But then the whole point of it though, is to like have things in place so that when it does happen, you're prepared and it's not as big of a problem as it could be. Um, so when you cut those things and then it happens, then it's a lot more disastrous than maybe would be otherwise. It's hard to say, obviously, because we don't know. But, um, you know, it wouldn't be a bad thing to have more CDC funding right now. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't think he just doesn't think that way. So. I think, you know, for for him, it's really bad timing, all of it. And all of those little risks that he took are they were paying off, I would say, um, because the economy was doing very well and unemployment was at historic lows. But now it's taken a complete turn and we're looking at maybe 30 percent unemployment. So which is like the highest ever in U.S. history. So, you know, so now it's a completely different ball game and a lot of those risks are not paying off now. So right. There's always been a sort of rational short-termism in our politics, which is that people get elected and they have to think about the consequences of their actions only within the next couple years until their next election. But this is a whole new ball game where we have an actual goldfish who is leading things. You know, someone who only comprehends what is immediately in front of him and plays everything by ear, improvises, does not do his homework, and does not think about anything but the sort of how things are going to play within the next 24 hours for his news cycle and his polls. And it's, 
it was a gamble that was that he was getting pretty lucky with for a while, and now yeah. we have a real crisis. Yep, and now his luck ran out, ran out essentially. Yeah. yeah, which it's interesting because you know this weekend, you know, for a while everyone was freaking out because he was saying we'd be reopening the country by Easter. And everyone was in a panic because that doesn't seem possible. Um, And then this weekend, he did this big briefing where they were looking at the projected number of deaths um, that will be taking place over the next couple of weeks. And from what I heard from uh, Anthony Fauci and I forget the there's another um, there's a woman who's also like leading the task force whose name escapes me but um from what i gathered from them it it seemed like once they kind of were able to explain to trump that like reopening the country on april 12th is probably going to cause like up to two million people to die versus if we don't do that then we can keep the deaths around one to two hundred thousand that like something in that sort of severity caused him to wake up and kind of actually (laughs) change his mind and um, defer to the experts um, because obviously he did change his tune with that whole Easter idea and completely scrapped that. Um, And we, we can, we can trust him to hold to that for several days. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm from what I understood it seemed like it cuz Anthony Fauci talked to some different reporters just cuz obviously he's talking to Trump daily about this. So, um he probably has one of the greatest ideas of what Trump actually thinks. And he said that when they really presented the death toll that was what really changed his um, sort of narrow tunnel vision goal and I don't know so I'm like maybe he does have some empathy somewhere then I don't know uh. <laughs> or he just has enough sense to realize that if they can run an ad saying the president killed your grandma well, then he won't get reelected. I mean, that's bad too. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, one to two million deaths. That's like I don't even know. I that's that's like Holocaust level deaths. Well, yeah, it's so, more it's more than have ever died in a war in the United States. United States, um, yeah. Right. It's basically yeah. The only comparisons are other pan other plagues and genocides and uh, you know these true nightmare events uh that happen once that happen in a given place uh less than once in a century and that you know in the world happen every few decades yeah yeah i mean i think even for me because for a while i was like well like, I probably will be fine, um, but it is a little scary because I've seen some stories of, um, obviously, and if you look at the death numbers, it's by and large older 
people who are dying from the coronavirus. But there have been some cases of some young, healthy people who have contracted the virus and died. Um, Those are anomaly cases, but there are unexplainable deaths where these were like perfectly healthy, not even like people who were young and had diabetes or had some other kind of chronic health condition. They were in perfect health and ended up dying. Right. And they don't know why. So that does, that did scare me into being like, you know, I, if I got it, like I could die. I mean, it is possible. It's probably not going to happen. Even, you know, you're probably not even going to go to the hospital, but it, it is in the realm of possibility. And if you're dying, and I think part of like, if you're, it, it's not even like a normal circumstance where somebody gets sick and you, you know, are able to visit them in the hospital and be with them in their last moments or whatever. It literally, you, your last moments right now, you're going to be on FaceTime. Like, mm-hmm. Nobody's allowed into these hospitals. Um, you know, no visitors can go into um, the ICU or anything like that. It doesn't matter if you're dying or not. And if if you do die, there's no funerals happening. You literally have two choices. Um, I was actually reading a couple people on Twitter talking about this who had loved ones who have died that literally you have to choose between a direct cremation and a direct burial. That's it. And so mm-hmm. you, you have two choices and that that's it. There, there is like, there's absolutely no goodbyes. Um, there, there's nothing. So right. I think that's scary. Like, you know, can you imagine like if you're all by yourself and um, the only person that you can probably have any contact with is whatever nurse or doctor is taking care of you. And even that. Right. You know, and they're overwhelmed. They, yeah. you know, in the nightmare scenario, in the scenario that's happening in Iran and Italy, um, you know, they're, uh, you know, these doctors are going to have, you know, there's going to be long-term psychological effects on medical workers who have to live through this scenario where, you know, every day, 15 people under their care die. Well, and that's uh, back the fact that a lot of them don't even have the proper medical tools right. at their disposal. They can't even protect themselves. They don't have masks. They don't have gowns. You know, last week, my tweet of the week was about those nurses at Mount Sinai who were wearing trash bags. Right. Um, you, know, and you, you know, imagine, imagine being a doctor and you know how to save someone, but you don't have the resource. You don't have the ventilator. So you can't intubate them because even though it's a very straightforward procedure that you do every day, there's not enough, you know, this person, you had to make the decision whether to save the person who has a 75% chance of surviving or the person who has a 50% chance of surviving. Um, You know, those psychological effects. And then also the scenario we're trying to avoid is one where the hospitals are overwhelmed and not only people with the virus, but other people who need medical resources have to, are dying who wouldn't otherwise be dying. Yeah. Because if the hospital is filled, 
imagine the hospital is filled up, completely uh, overwhelmed, and you get hit by a car. Well, now you know you're you might not get the hospital bed you need. You might not get the resources you need. You might get a doctor who is completely overwhelmed, who hasn't slept in 36 hours. Uh, you know, it's the the excess deaths are not just, you know, you can't just look at the checklist of groups of people who are at risk and know that you're going to be fine. Yeah, which um, I would say that concern, that's one of the reasons they brought in the USNS Comfort to New York, which is the epicenter in the United States. And because people who they're not putting any COVID people into the ship, they're only putting people who need some kind of other hospital treatment into the ship. Um, So, which is probably a smart move. And, you know, I, I definitely, it's alarming that we need to like bring in a Navy ship for this kind of thing. But I did seeing it, seeing all those pictures of it coming into the Harbor, I thought were a really nice sign of hope. And I think a lot of people felt like that. And I remembered, I was like, I remember why I love our military and why we spend so much money and all of that. Um, So I thought that was like a cool patriotic moment. But I don't know if you saw this, but apparently like when it was when the ship was making its arrival, there was a bunch of crowds that gathered (laughs) on following social distancing. Right. Did you see that? Yeah. Um, Which, you know, is is concerning. I I totally get it, though. I think people are just looking and and some people were like going crazy shaming these people who were crowding and like yeah they need to be more responsible obviously but i i think people were just excited to see like some kind of sign of hope and so i don't really blame them i I don't think it was like intentionally happening i think people were just excited and wanted to see it and all kind of ran out of their houses at the same time yeah you know, it ha- they probably should have maybe had some better planning logistics, knowing that people are probably going to run outside their house to come see the ship. Maybe they should have, like, thought about some planning logistics there. But, you know, I, but at least, you know, something like that is hopefully going to be able to address that concern and not spread it to people who need some kind of other hospital treatment or are there for some other reason. Um, cause at least in New York now, they can go to the ship and how cool would that be you get to go out you get to go to a ship <laughs> the doctor to- i'm seasick <laughs> i wasn't thinking about that i was like man because um i took a cruise maybe how long maybe like eight or nine years ago and i could not i really had a hard time sleeping because i could mm-hmm. feel the ship rocking back and forth and obviously a cruise ship it's very large um but i could still feel it um yeah like it was I did get a little seasick I never like got sick but I felt a little like queasy and it was hard for me to like fall asleep feeling like the rocking motions so <laughs> I didn't think about that I was like it'd be cool in one aspect because you get to like be on the navy ship but I, I'm like man I feel like in some other ways I'm like, like I don't know if that'd be so fun because you might feel although the ship's not moving so maybe that stops some of it but um so that means you're probably not going to be able to live your dream of 
you know, giving it all up and becoming a pirate. <laughs> no, yeah, I think we're going to have to to put that on hold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I do want to talk a little bit as far as the election goes um, and pivot back to that just because I want to talk about Joe Biden a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, this week. Um, well, there's, I think, two major things happening with Biden this week. One, obviously, is, um, which, oops, sorry, um, I'm just pulling up my articles for reference. Yeah. Um, we have, a, like, a good story and a bad story. So maybe we'll start with the bad story, which is his former staffer, Tara Reid, uh, claiming that he sexually assaulted her in 1993. I was looking over uh, transcripts she did from an interview with Democracy Now!, which the story is a little confusing. And I my understanding is that um, Reed uh, sort of brought these allegations up um, last year when back sort of at the height of Me Too and when people were talking about Biden being like too affectionate and hugging people too much and that kind of thing. Right. Um, he never sort of gave explicit details or anything she didn't really i think it was more elusive and then now the claims are a lot more pointed and originally it was just sort of getting on the you know a lot of people were talking about his kind of touchiness his sniffing and all we've seen all these photos he's clearly has not thought about Boundaries with strangers very well, Um, and yeah, it is a it is behavior that very understandably makes people feel alienated when it's done. We're on different sides of this, actually. I don't agree. I think those claims are stupid. It's an example of me too going too far. Where was it? Nobody's. I think the idea that like Joe Biden is like copying a feel is so idiotic like joe biden is just a warm affectionate guy like he's empathetic he is is just more touchy-feely and maybe because i'm from the midwest like i I feel like he has he's not actually it's funny like i feel like he could be from the midwest um with a lot of his kind of sensibilities but um he has that kind of demeanor where people are just a little bit like more comfortable being in each other's space i think and mm. well c- now, i don't ever think he's done any of that like maliciously or um i think that's just like his personality and i think he's in a lot of situations where he's comforting people for different reasons and people kind of he's always kind of been like that empathetic kind of like preacher figure so i think it's just more like circumstantial and that now the standards of propriety have just kind of shifted i think especially with like men and women mm-hmm. uh, and i, I so do want to push back on that a little crossfire more than anything like that in and of itself the original kind of biden hair sniffing thing um it, it was never it never rose to the level of being an assault allegation no. or an allegation really of misconduct so much as an allegation of a guy who doesn't have good boundaries and who made some people uncomfortable and i think that you know it's clear that people talked about 
being made uncomfortable, who were at the receiving end of those hugs. Well, of course, uh, fine. I'm like, of course, you and I are on like different sides of this. Well, I, I mean, I, I believe in hugging. I'm a good hugger. Yeah. I know uh, you just have stronger boundaries than I do in general, though. So I think that's right. part of where I'm like, well, you know, it's not a big deal. <laughs> sure, but I, I think fundamentally, if if you if you have a habit that makes some people uncomfortable, then and that habit is, you know, something that you kind of, you know, it, it is a sort of imposition. Uh, that kind of hug where you create a social situation where a person has to either be put in this uncomfortable in this hold that is uncomfortable to them or they have to start something, i.e. say, can you not touch me? And then obviously they have to consider, is it worth is it worth being known as that person who doesn't like hugs uh, in order to avoid this uncomfortable situation, uh, you know, I, I do think that probably for that pseudo scandal, it was brought up as an issue. He apologized. He's been more uh, careful since then. And that's the correct response. Now, the new allegation from Tara Reid that this was not just the, the, the standard Joe Biden is a little too familiar. Yeah, I mean, her allegation. Her, her allegation, allegation is he, he stuck his hand up her skirt yes. and hit on her. And. Well, I would it's I mean. I feel like hand up your skirt can mean a lot of different things. Um <laughs> I was going to make a joke at your expense with that, Um, which I'm pretty sure you know what it is already. (laughs) So, uh, specifically, she alleges that he penetrated her with his hand, Mm -hmm. and which is, so technically that would be, um, I believe technically under the definition of rape, that would follow i think it depends state by state i was trying to remember because like there's a lot of differences with like is it penetration is it not penetration and then, like, regardless yeah it's a pretty anyway, it's a huge deal it is if, a, if, if, the if, point if it's, is she's alleging at least sexual assault right something not criminal harassment or not even i mean those other things aren't even harassment but yeah it, it's going like way up the ladder of severity to the very top basically which sorry i didn't mean to cut you off i just wanted to hear i guess like i what are your thoughts on this whole thing like um yeah because i i don't know i have mixed opinions about it yeah i i do think that as always uh Public accusations are inherently complicated, um, especially when they have political stakes. Uh, you know, we saw this with Brett Kavanaugh. Um, with Kavanaugh, there was, you know, there were hearings, there were conversations, there were, there was a great deal of process that was able to establish a lot of circumstantial evidence 
uh, of wrongdoing. And, you know, there was there was a full investigation. And I think that it was a much more clear cut case that it should have been disqualifying. I actually don't know what your opinion on that is. Um, (laughs) I don't agree. Okay. (laughs) I, yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily want to get into a whole Brett Kavanaugh thing, but I think a lot of that was really like, and the thing people I think miss as far as those confirmation hearings go, those are not a legal hearing that's not court okay so we're not talking about did a criminal thing happen or did it not like that's not like the point (laughs) nor is that the job of the judges or any of those people involved in those hearings because it doesn't matter quite frankly if she's not going to bring a criminal charge then it doesn't really matter I don't think either way and we can't be looking at things from that perspective because it's not within the context of the judicial system. So I I think that there is, there's a much smaller uh, hurdle in terms of uh, burden of proof for refusing to hire someone. Like even if, he says, yes, I did it. Unless she brings a criminal charge against him, it we can't, like, look at things from that perspective. because it's- I, I really don't think that that's true, because I think that uh, with criminal charges, we have all sorts of caveats, think- statues of limitation, the burden of proof being beyond a reasonable doubt. And I think that the burden of proof is different if you're talking about uh, giving someone a criminal record, locking them up for a crime versus not hiring them for a job. It is, is different, but I guess I think people were looking for sort of like legal recourse in that whole thing. And, and I think also my question with it is why would she not bring criminal charges? I guess. Because I I think it's, it's past a point You, you can't, well, there, and there I, I is think part evidence of evidence sufficient for a criminal charge in a case that happened 30 years ago. No, but that's the point. Like, like now this was not something that she she ever alleged up until this point. So I do think that is a little suspicious. It, it does like the timing of it is very, you know, pointed. So just as this sort of is, but I think that even more so. Um. Yeah, and and so I think that, I think, leads to credibility question, just as far as, like, you know, if this was something that had gone into the criminal system at some point, I think there'd be a lot more um, sort of fuel behind that fire. But because it hadn't been, like, what are we even really talking about? And, like, I think, like, with any job, like, if I was getting a job and somebody went to my prospective employer and said, like, Aaron did this thing. Like, I don't think that's fair that my employer is, like, even looking into that whole thing. Like, what does this person who has nothing to do with anything, why are they even getting involved? Like, I I kind of feel like that's inappropriate. So, I don't know. And, and, I, and the whole thing, I don't even think, if I remember correctly with the details of the Brett Kavanaugh, situation 
I don't even think like sexual assault was part of that, was it? What? Because and and it was something that happened 30 years ago. So I think part of the question is like, can you do something 30 years ago and like move on and change, or like did something you do 30 years ago like follow you forever? I don't know. I don't remember I, the, but I rem- it's not because I don't think she alleged rape exactly. I I I'm can't remember I'm, the exact context, but I remember it it wasn't that severe. It was something, if not rape, it was close to I it. I think it was something like uh, sexual it was, coercion, which is different, actually. Because it was something like being held down at a party, and I don't know. Regardless, I, yeah. the, my, my point is that, like, <laughs> there was, within the media and within congressional hearings there was quite a bit of light shed on that allegation. And I think that an allegation against someone whom we are considering for the presidency does deserve light. And, you know, it may very well be that upon investigation, uh, you know, upon investigation, upon further investigation, the allegation will either become more credible or less credible, mm-hmm. um, depending on what else turns up. If other accusers turn up, it becomes more credible. If evidence of some sort of uh, yeah, because I mean, she alleged she said they asked her like in this Democracy Now interview, they asked her very specific questions about like did was this documented did you go to any higher ups and she claims that she did so if those things did happen there should be documentation for it right and then if that's the case and and yeah so then if there's a paper trail for this then it becomes a much bigger issue that would definitely it irreparably damages my view of joe biden as a person if this can be substantiated in in any significant way and it does raise the question of you know um this this tariff well it, it raises this terrifying ethical question of we're this far in the primary we can't turn back the clock so what happens you know it creates uh, a party crisis which will obviously have implications for a gen- for a general election and you know there's no if if the allegation uh is substantiated then there's no <laughs> There's no desirable outcome. Uh, and I mean, that terrifies me as a Democrat, a liberal Democrat who aligns with Joe Biden in a lot of ways politically, who likes him as a person. But it means that I also feel a very strong responsibility to not let my personal you know, to not let my political interest dictate 
my evaluation of this allegation. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, listen, like, it would change my opinion of Joe Biden, I think, if it was true. Although, but that's even, I think, the point I was trying to make earlier. Like, what does true really mean? Because I guess, I don't know. It's just, I think it's more complicated when we're just, like, kind of making a decision based on, I guess, collective evidence versus because even you know what's admissible in court is different than like what's admissible like on twitter so i don't know so it you can't and you can't necessarily apply those legal standards outside of a legal process so it's difficult i think to say um to sort of like come to a conclusion i guess um without talking to all these different witnesses without um having a really deep, complex understanding of the law and, um, you know, even laws at that time, because they may have been different. So, because, you know, you have to remember the context of when things happened also. So, yeah, I don't know. So, to me, would it affect me voting for Joe Biden? Absolutely not. Trump has done, like, ten times worse, and I get it. It's like the Democrats are supposed to be better. But, like... I don't know. Trump has done this. I I, I agree with with voting for the lesser evil, but I also agree with, you know, in an ideal, I would, I would agree with if this is something, if after the, the smoke settles on the coronavirus thing and we really can, you know, have the bandwidth to dig into this. And if it, if it, stays credible then you know i uh, i would support you know replacing the nominee although that's obviously quite a an extreme measure but it's an extreme measure for an extreme situation um because you know i do think that the 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 standards for you know, should a person be president and the standard for should a person be in jail are different standards. Uh, For a person to be in jail, they need clear, beyond reasonable doubt evidence. Uh, For a person to be president, you need to have, you know, moral character above that's unimpeachable. You need to have command of the issues. You know, it's not a criminal offense to know nothing about China, it is disqualifying for a presidential candidate, in my view. Uh, that's a little rambly, and I don't know if the comparison totally makes sense. But <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. I, I understand what you're saying. I think also one of the interesting questions, I mean, all of that is subjective, though, right? Like, I mean, ultimately, it's the people who decide who's fit to be president and what what. Well, and I'm one of the are. people. You are, but I'm saying there's other there's 300 and some other million people is what I'm saying. So what I'm 320, I believe. So although not all of those are eligible to vote, but in any case, um, I think one of the interesting questions with this Donald Trump presidency to begin with is is this going to change the standards of what we consider presidential, which I don't think we're going to know that 
until this election, maybe even until the next one is over. Um, But I think that's one of the questions that is kind of on the table at this point. Right. And I I don't think that's knowable until, yeah, the next election or the election after that, because, uh, you know, if Trump loses, that changes a lot. Uh, If Trump loses, then uh, we want to see. So how does the Republican Party pick up after a Trump loss? Does it run Trump to the seek the squeakquel or does it run, uh, you know, does it sort of do a 90 degree pivot and run a uh, try try to run a return to normalcy candidate uh, from the like Paul Ryan, John Boehner, Jeb Bush from that little community of people that are all off living on an island somewhere waiting for this whole thing to blow over. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I also do want to move to the other Biden story, which is about his VP nomination or potential VP nomination. Since he confirmed that he, well, he said back the last debate that he is for sure going to be choosing a woman as his mm. running mate. And so now there's been speculation on who that woman is going to be. And there was confirmation yesterday from the Biden campaign that he's considering Gretchen Whitmire, who is the governor of Michigan. Um, and I think she's an interesting choice. You know, obviously Michigan is a very key state in this election, Um, It's a state that Trump won in 2016 that the Democrats probably need to flip in order to win in 2020. Um, And I like her a lot. Um, I've been seeing a lot more of her recently. I mean, we've been seeing a lot more of all the governors, I think, recently. And, um, you know, she's very poised. Um, I think she's very well measured. Um, She's very smart. You know, she's Midwestern. I think there's a lot of good things going for her. Um, And, you know, but I think even um, I don't remember who said it, but I was reading something that I was was talking about the the Obama and Biden relationship and like the friendship that they had and how rare that that kind of friendship is actually between a president and vice president and how like Biden can't really fake it with anyone. So like who he picks is going to be somebody he really connects with. Um, and whoever said that, I just totally agreed. I was like, I 100% think that that is true. I think with him in particular, he's got to have that, like, camaraderie. And I feel like somebody like a Midwestern girl could be that person. Um, I think she's a great choice. Like, I, I think especially, you know, looking at if you're trying to really, I think, tap into that moderate vote, um, you know, she'd be a good person to choose. Um, again, you know, lo- looking at her being from the state of Michigan, um, and I and I think she'd do well at the job. I mean, um, she definitely is qualified, and um, mm-hmm. it would be a huge boost for her, obviously. Like, and but I I think she could do it. And what I've seen of her, I've been really impressed by. You know, she's younger, also. Um, she's a younger governor, so. Um, and I, I don't know, I feel like they have some similar, like, personality traits, where I could see them really getting along, um, 
So I like it. I know a lot of people have also talked about like Stacey Abrams as a potential. Someone like that, it, going back to that connection point, I'm not so sure like he would connect with her in that same way. And I don't know why exactly, but just I feel like Stacey Abrams is this like sort of like cool. She's an older millennial, but I think like this sort of like cool, like no nonsense kind of millennial um, that like young people also, I think like really um, she has a lot of support among younger voters. And I don't know. I just feel like Biden doesn't like click with somebody like that because he's very like old timey. So I don't know, but I just wanted to ask you, I know I've talked to her a while about this, but um, like, what do you think of her as a potential pick? And what are you kind of thinking as far as, I don't know, who your dream running mate mm. for him would be? And yeah, what do you think? Uh, I think that Whitmer is pretty close to the dream for me uh, in terms of um, being someone who's from a key state who is this is kind of the perfect time for a governor because governors are in the zeitgeist because governors are all flexing their executive muscles as they have to handle this crisis uh, in the absence of a trustworthy executive at the federal level. Um, And yeah, she'd, uh, she'd be our first, uh, would she be our first Gen X vice president? I guess so. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's exciting. Uh, finally, the the music of Pearl Jam will play within the White House walls. That's I don't, I don't know what I'm getting at with that. <laughs> I don't I don't think she's she's not like Beto O'Rourke type of Gen X. No. Um, <laughs> but, you know, she is she represents a new younger generation uh even though she's almost 50 but considering the 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 way that age has gone in our politics uh it with the average senator being in their 70s yes it's yes uh and i think that it's good uh probably to pick someone who wasn't in the primary because the primary got pretty rough. Uh, you know, a uh, Kamala Harris brings a lot of enthusiasm in one direction, but she also brings a lot of enthusiasm in the opposite direction because of how kind of brutal the primary got. Uh, you know, because you, you have the, <clears throat> the, the sort of K-Hive people yeah, I mean, even now and like, you have the kamala cool. harris is a cop people uh, so yeah someone with less um someone who's almost not as hasn't been in the zeitgeist for He's as long kind of new yeah no i was just gonna say that i like i mean i think it was pretty brutal from the get-go because i like whenever i think about kamala harris and biden like all I think about is that first debate where she sort of called him out for supporting busing back in the seventies, um, which right. I thought that whole thing was kind of 
a dumb attack just because it's like we're yeah it was, it was a 22 way knife fight in an elevator <laughs> and yeah. i mean yeah so but like you know i think that's the picture i i think of when i think about kamala harris and if i'm thinking about it then i think a lot of other people would probably have those same kind of thoughts and maybe hesitations. She's also not from a key state that we, you know, the Democrats always win California. So doesn't help there. Um, you know, she is African-American. Oh no, maybe she isn't actually. Is she just, she is, she is. Okay. She is. So, you know, she could help as far as having the African-American support. Although I think he already kind of has that locked and loaded. So, um, but yeah, I agree. I think somebody new, and I think even people are kind of looking for that, like a fresh face. It goes with this whole kind of thing of people don't want kind of the same old, same old. They want change. So I think if you bring somebody in who kind of represents that and isn't already sort of whittled in these different political circles in Washington, that that can reflect very positively on the candidate. So, um, yeah, I mean, so we're both kind of on the same page with this, it seems like. <laughs> yeah, I think she's a very strong pick. Um, and, you know, she has, a, she has a good resume, which I think is the weakness of a Stacey Abrams that yeah. Abrams ran for governor. She kind of got robbed, but ultimately that means that she hasn't gone beyond state house of representatives and with Biden, I think in the minds of a lot of voters, there is the big question of what happens if his health gives out two years into his term and someone has to take the reins who is not ready. Right. If, yeah. If you have Biden Abrams or Biden Buttigieg, then you have a situation where well, he's picking a woman. So I know I'm just talking about kind of people. I know but... you have a situation where someone who has only been in local politics or who has only uh, been responsible for a, a couple hundred thousand people is suddenly responsible for the entire country, and I think that does make people nervous. Yeah. So Whitmer seems very strong. You say it's uh, Whit. I say Whitmire. Whitmire or Whitmer. Whitmire. Yeah. Wikipedia doesn't give. A, <laughs> Wikipedia pretty- gives a compromise. Uh, it gives pronunciation guides for non-white candidates, but it does not give pronunciation <laughs> guides for white politicians. <laughs> um, like it gives you a pronunciation for the a guide for the name Kamala, but it doesn't give you a pronunciation guide for the name Whitmer. It's Whitmire. Right. I'm from the Midwest, trust me. <laughs> How do you say bagel? Bagel. Say it like bagel. You bagel. Oh, okay. Fine. My A is like sharper. I feel you bagel. used to say bagel. No, I didn't. Whatever. I never said that. Okay, cut that out. <laughs> I might be confused with someone else. You think you are? Um. Well, I was going to have us play a game, but we're already like an hour and 20 minutes in. So I think we're going to save the debate and the game for next time. We sort of had a debate. 
about the, the sort of. But uh, I meant, you know, like where we do the randomizer and. Yes. Yeah. So I think we're going to save that. Um, so with that, it's time to wrap it up for this episode, but I think it was a really good one. We got into a lot of like heavy policy and we definitely did have a couple debates within there. Right. So, um, make sure to subscribe to the podcast to get weekly episodes, um, or on Apple podcasts, we're on Spotify. Um, you can also check out the blank buzz website at blankbuzz.com and, um, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at blank buzz links for all of these things are going to be in the show notes. And I want to thank all of you for listening and also encourage you to leave a review to rate the podcast. It really helps as far as analytics and things like that go. Um, and, you know, share it with a friend, share it on your social media. Um, sharing is caring. So <laughs> if you like what you hear, please share. Um, with that, Wesley, do you have anything you'd like to add? Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Indiana Walsh. Um, once again, I'm going to plug Progress and Poverty by Henry George uh, because I don't have anything of my own to plug. And uh, yeah, that's it on my end. All right. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Are you thanking me or are you thanking the listeners? Yes. Both? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Well, um, thank you for participating in this um i'm having a lot of fun doing this with you and we'll be back next week with a new episode all right